Hello and welcome to The Prestige, a podcast all about films, filmmaking, filmmakers and film theory. Each week we pick a film, we review it, talk about it and then discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And we'll always end with our recommendations of further reading, further watching inspired by the actors or director involved in the film of the week. All more of a thematic connection that comes to mind when we're watching. But before we kick off, we always do a quick catch-up on what else we've been watching. So, Rob, what about you? Well, now, despite what I think of as being quite a film nerd, and despite having quite a large knowledge of, of movies, there are some blind spots in my in my filmic history. So I'm trying to clear up some of those blind spots. And so this weekend, my wife and I watched 1988's Coming to America. Eddie Murphy starring in multiple roles with uh, support from Arsenio Hall, James L. Jones, um, basically tells the story of a very pampered, very well-off African prince who comes to America, to Queens in New York, to try and find his wife. It's right at the peak of Eddie Murphy's sort of uh, renown and power. You know, this is the Beverly Hills copy era. It's that kind of era. Um, and it's a film that I've heard about most of my life. It's referenced a lot. I've just literally never seen it. So we rectified that. And it, it's worth the hype. It's funny. Um, it's it's dated in a way that a lot of 80 movies are. Um, you see you see a lot of the uh, sort of the beliefs and sort of opinions of the time that may have moved on a little bit these days. Um, but Eddie Murphy, when he's funny, he's hilarious. Arsenio Hall is great in support. And I suppose in many ways it's, it's great to see a film that is so filled with the black actors of its time. Um, in the same way, there's been a lot of hype around Black Panther coming out, I think, next year, and how it essentially managed to employ every single um, well-known and popular black actor of our time has been appearing in that. It feels like this equally has stars everyone who uh, uh, had a job out there to get. So I think that's that, that's not worth celebrating and supporting. Um, right. yeah, bottom line, it's it's very, very funny. Eddie Murphy's hilarious, um, and I very much enjoyed it. What about you, Sam? Um, a few months ago, you mentioned it was a, a time when you weren't seeing much in the way of films. You mentioned um, a few travel programs that you were interested in, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know whether it's it's baby associated, but um, we've been getting into travel programs as well. Um, I think the imminent realization that travel is not going to be an option. May have something to do with that. <laughs> Live vicariously through the TV show. Yeah. I understand that. I understand that. So living vicariously at the moment through um, Jack Whitehall travels with my father, which is a, a Netflix special, Netflix original, um, and it's a twenty-eight-year-old Jack Whitehall. So he's not gap year age anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never had a gap year. He went straight into comedy. So he's trying to rectify that with the help of his father, who is... um, It wouldn't be very funny if his father weren't an EP on the programme. And that's something I find with um with other programmes, that if if it involves a large amount of ribbing of a certain character, then it's, it's comforting to know that that actor was heavily involved in production. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael Whitehall is is a producer on this show, and it's it's very enjoyable and not too mentally taxing, and just what we need at the moment. 
brilliant. I must say, I've never seen it. I'm, I'm, I've never warmed to Whitehall as a comedian. No, so I've he... kind of sort of taken a step back from his work. Shall mm. we say. I don't really like him either, but there is something about the father-son dynamic that I quite enjoyed, and his the way that he turns into a teenager when he's with his dad, which he acknowledges. But mm. there is something more than just the Jack Whitehall humour, which I can, I agree can get a bit grating. I don't much enjoy that, but the the programme itself is quite enjoyable. So Jack Whitehall travels with my father. Brilliant, brilliant. So this week, guys, we are finished. We finished up our Kirikurasaya month last week, and we are beginning again uh, this month with the very different yet equally praised and reviled director Joel Schumacher. And we are starting with, in many ways, his one of his famous films, uh, the 1987 classic, The Lost Boys. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Lost Boys tells the story of two brothers who move to the fictional town of Santa Carla uh, following the divorce of their parents. And there they discover the local life is less boardwalks and bobby socks and more vampires and killing. The older brother is seduced by the, the vampire way of life and the younger brother is taken under the wing of two local nerdy worlds who tend to be vampire killers. It's very 80s in its way, and it's one of those movies where you can watch it and go, I know you, I know you, where I know you from. And it's full of actors who you recognise from other places. When we get down to recommendations, I'm sure you'll find that we could have gone in any number of directions, any number of actors into other quality films. Now, I've seen this film many times. I saw it probably back when I was a teenager. But I think I recall from our conversation, Sam, that you hadn't seen it prior to this week. No. So, in a film that in many ways is about teenagehood and it kind of aimed at teenage, how was it seeing it as a 30-something? Well, you see, there are certain things that, and I'm not going to... I'm aware there will be certain people who don't agree with me on any aspect of this, but there are certain things that I feel are... Sort of characteristic of the 80s um, and really should have been left in the 80s. Um, things like Bonnie Tyler, I'm not a huge fan of, and the Rubik's Cube. Let's just get over that and move on. Was it because you could never do one? Is that what it was, Sam? <gasps> is, is, is this a child of trauma? You could never, never do a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> so you're just bitter. Never wanted to. This is another thing that I just like I it, you call it a classic but I mean really like yeah <laughs> I right it remains for you to persuade me what is classic about this film I did not I did not get involved with this film the the one thing I enjoyed about this film was that it was only 93 minutes long I just when it was open, I mean I thought Sam's going to enjoy the fact that it's a short film doesn't like a short film <laughs> yeah um, 
yeah, I, I, I struggled to find anything other than that. Although, actually, I, I did quite enjoy the way that the missing posters kept popping up and the um, lolly appearing on the milk carton and the camera lingering on that. Um, the missing poster on that. Um, and I enjoyed a little bit the Doors references and didn't entirely get why they were so into the Doors. There was a huge prominent poster of Jim Morrison on the wall of the cave. Um, it, was it just because they used a Doors track in the title? Like, just why? Um, and yeah, I, I just didn't get this film. I mean, it felt from the moment it started with the sort of shaky cam start and the um the lighting in the car park, it just felt suspiciously like Batman and Robin. Oh, Sam. Them spiting words. <laughs> so allow allow me to make it a pitch for this yes. one. Allow me to try and uh, convince you of its worth. So I think there are a number of things at work here. One of which, which we won't touch on too much, is this was the birth of the two Corys in the 80s. So Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, mm. who star uh, as, I want to say Sam and Max, but that's not the right um, <laughs> that who, who star as uh, Sam and one of the Frog Brothers, mm. Edgar Frog. Uh, this was their first film, and they went on to make a bunch of films throughout the uh, late 80s and early 90s. And they very much sort of dominated that kind of late teen uh, action moviness. For me, um, I think you've got to view this film in the in through the lens of it's a product of its time and of its audience. This is a, this is an eighties movie aimed at teenagers. Yeah, this isn't one that's aimed at Sam and I. And in so many ways, you watch things. If you miss out on watching movies like say The Goonies, like I did as a kid, or The Flood Navigator, mm. or all of these things that they are so tied to being a certain age, aimed at a certain age that. If you miss that window, it's not going to connect to you in many ways. But I think for me, what I enjoy about this film is it tries to speak to what what puberty is like and what growing up is like and what becoming an adult is like, especially in the situation where you've got a divorced parent and so the two sons are kind of slightly forced to stand up and become the man of the house in many ways. And yes, this film is filled with blood and violence and viscera and gore and people dissolving in bathtubs full of holy water. But there is there is a through line here about these two pe- these two kids who at the start of the film are quite easygoing. The biggest concern is that there's no MTV, um, and they kind of go through a sort of ritualistic, uh, sort of many ways kind of coming of age through their battles with David mm. and the uh, the vampire hordes. Also, I mean, I, I genuinely like it. I think that Keith Sutherland is brilliant as as the leader of vampires. I think he is the right line of creepy and charismatic and you kind of understand why people are scared of him but also why the older brother is kind of drawn to him Hmm. in that kind of way they have that kind of james dean-esque billy idol-esque with the hair particularly sort of look and feel about him and the feeling of of the um vampires around them i really like particularly how looking at the the four vampires they all kind of their clothes weren't what you'd say were traditional for the 80s they kind of had a feeling out of time, and whilst I, I go out and live with him a lot, I know I'm alone. That if you watch like Hook, the portrayal of the Lost Boys there being a link to the title, um, 
the clothing that Lost Boys there is across the years. The idea that they've come to these, this island throughout the, throughout the millennia and they've ended up there. And the feeling you get is that these four vampires aren't all, they aren't all 80s kids. They come from other places. Mm. Uh, which is also why they talk differently and live differently. Um, and they live in this kind of ramshack hotel, say with a giant Jim Morrison poster. I do think there's some weak links. I think Diane West is particularly weak in this. I didn't think I'd get much out of her performance. Um, but I very much enjoyed the two brothers. I thought Jamie Gertz's star as the love interest slash Patsy was, was very good in this. Um, and I did enjoy Edward Herman as Max, the owner of the local video store. The other thing, and this is where I'm going to move into spoiler territory here a little bit. I think we, especially Sam and I, come at this movie off the back of many, 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 many more years of teenage vampire shows and movies. Mm. Now, I don't know about Sam, but I've watched all of Buffy. I've watched some of True Blood. Um, you see a lot. There's a lot more vampire, vampiric myths out there. So the idea that David was never going to be the leader of the vampires and there was secretly another one isn't a twist reveal to modern audiences. No, you, 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 because we've been trained to always believe. Well, there's obviously going to be someone else. You know, it's not going to be that easy because the movies these days have worked to subvert the old myths. I think that, like, I understand that at the time and the place it was, it was a big shock reveal or it was a twist in the story. But I do get that right now you're looking, well, yeah, obviously, he's, he's the only other character in it. The only other person he could be would be Grandad, and that would be weird. Yeah. Um. So I understand why that twist, as I've watched it more, as I've grown up, has hit me less and less and less. And these I understand why people think that twist isn't anything. Because, like, obviously, that's where you end up. I can see what you're saying, because, like, he even the sort of plot point where he gets invited into the house is, like, Everyone knows that now. Mm. It's become this thing that everyone knows about vampire myths. That that is how you re- render all these these charms against a vampire null and void. Mm. Yet, I I like what what you're saying about this. I think the, the theme. If I was thinking about a theme for this this week, I was just thinking that this is a film about being out of place. And maybe about like being a subculture, what it means to be something that's not mainstream. So whether you've got the vampires, you've got the lost boys that are sort of out of time, or you have Sam and Michael who are struggling to adjust to a new home. This is about, and this is why I suppose this is why the doors make sense, because this repeated refrain of people are strange is exactly what this film is about. Mm. And you have that, even when, I mean, the Frog Brothers are friends of Sam, but even, I mean, the right at the beginning, the first thing they do is comment on how strange he looks. Mm. It does very much feel like, in many ways, this is a place, Santa Carla is a place out of time, out of relation to the rest of the world. Mm. Um, and the, the mildly famous last line from Grandpa, you know, one thing I always hate about Hazard is all the damn vampires. Um, and I think that like, he knows, like, he obviously is aware of vampires. It feels like this this place that's separate from the rest of the world. You know, you, you said this in, in the late 80s. And aside from the video store, it's, it's a boardwalk. And it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's train tracks. It's, it's not like they aren't embracing the rest of the 80 tropes mm. you've got. And the, 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 especially the place where the vampires live, they're kind of... I want to say 
I feel like it's a broken down hotel, but it's basically a cave, isn't it? That they decorated in many ways. Yeah. yeah. But it feels out of time. Like you say, they've got a big Jim Morrison um, post on the wall, but they've also got these like drapes hanging over a bed and they drink from golden chalices. And it feels, once again, this kind of mashup and this mismatch of different eras and places and times and aesthetics. It feels, uh, weird, weirdly, to make a bizarre connection, but it's the way you have lots of different aesthetics coming together in the last scene of um, Indiana Jones' Last Crusade. It's, mm-hmm. that, it's that weird sense that the night has been there for millennia and all of these goblets are from different times in history. It's that idea of sort of a, a mishmash of bringing everything together. It, it, it gives that feeling of, of a t- place out of time, out of place. And another example I'd give would be uh, the horror film a couple of years ago, It Follows. Have you seen It Follows? I haven't, no. Great I remember you film. saying it was great. Great horror film, classic of modern era, I'd certainly say. But in that, you do you have, you have one person who's got like a a weird mid-90s kind of like Blackberry device. One person has a smartphone, other people have no phones. And, they can, and, and the dre- style of dress is very mismatch. Some are modern, some are like in the 80s, and this sort of combination, this mashup of styles, gives it a feeling of being any place, any time. Mm. Uh, I think in many ways the same thing can be said for for Santa Carla in that respect. You talk about subcultures and I think as as a product of, especially, um, of the sort of the punk and goth scene from my youth, I know more than a few people who clearly have derived their their look and their style from the Lost Boys. David, um, particularly, has uh, inspired many, and Michael himself. The Michael's look obviously ends up being very similar to, to the Doors. Jim Morrison, as we say, that, that repeated motif there. I think that there's the other sort of subtext that I would talk about, and it's one that I've seen mentioned a lot online, is the idea of homosexual love. Um, and the idea of, of, of these, of the brothers, both, both brothers, kind of finding male love with their respective partners be it um, David or, or, the, or the Frog Brothers um, Star obviously it definitely is the love interest in this but there's certainly you feel a deep connection between David and Michael as the Frog Brothers mm. that, that is I mean that's something I've looked into the origins of this film and it was much more Peter Pan related at the beginning and Peter Pan itself is much more about the relationships between the boys. And then Joel Schumacher came along and said, well, we need to soften this. And Star gets introduced as a character. And suddenly the, the names get changed. And it's not so... Although, I suppose Nanook's name staying to mirror Nana the dog in Peter Pan is the most obvious one. But it, it becomes sort of... George Schumacher comes on and says, "Let's make this more Hollywood friendly." But you're right; mm. there, there is a sort of a, a culture of homoeroticism behind this. As you say, I mean, there's this kind of camaraderie, and I think that they, you know we look at like zombies. We often say with zombies that they are a easy analogy for almost anything you want. Um, you know, some of the for some of the Romero films, they are communism or they are smartphones, or they are AIDS, or whatever you want them to be. Zombies are a very easy kind of thing to plug into your movie to mean something else. Mm. And the same thing hasn't quite been said for vampires. But I think there's something about vampires that, you know, 
short of the more sort of vicious, violent ones we've seen in other movies. They tend to be pale, slightly effeminate, and you can see a link between the stereotypical view of the effeminate gay man and the vampire, vampiric man, who sort of in that vampire Dracula mould can be a bit uh, effeminate and and dressed up, shall we say? Hmm. I think obviously this is all it's all in the world of stereotypes, not in the world of uh, sort of I don't know what it is, but stereotypes. Um, but I think there is there is a a link you can see there, and I think obviously the there is a there's an analogy between sort of vampirism and teenagehood. You know, changes in your body, go what you're going through. You know, sleeping more. And things you sort of, the hungers and that stuff that you grow in you um, as a, as a teenager, girl and boy. Hmm. I think there is an analogy there. I think well, then this this idea of being a subculture, not being mainstream, is not just not just relating to the way they they dress and behave. It, it extends to other things in the film, like being a teenager. That being a teenager is feeling out of time is feeling disconnected from the adults in your life so this becomes a film about that and sort of as you're saying you can use other supernatural creatures as ciphers well this is one that uses vampires as ciphers for being out of place out of time and I think that that, you, that way if you follow that, that to its logical end you can chart the film but in the idea that as a teenager we all make you know, mistakes and we all go through these changes and it leads us to make some bad decisions and I think I don't think there's a person in the world who can't look back at their teenage years and think you know what I made the wrong choice there but as you go through the film you, as you go through your life you, you vanquish those decisions you vanquish those friends and choices that you made and you end up as, as a whole person and I think you know you reconnect with an adult version of yourself as you sort of leave your teenage years and into your 20s and 30s I think mm. in this film they vanquish the vampire they vanquish the the elements of their lives that were leading them astray, and they kind of end up with this closer family unit at the end. Um, the four of them, Grandpa, Mum, and the two brothers, end up sort of reconciled. And I, yeah, I, I all hand on heart and say it's clear that Joel Schumacher has brought a very Hollywood ending to this film, a very Hollywood sheen to the movie. But I think you, just because of that, you still can, can draw some conclusions. What do you think the last line means? The last of little scene, I suppose, with Grandpa. I think it's just it feels like that. It feels like the open secret of the town. Mm. You know, Max himself says, "You know, my boys got to look carried away." Um, and it feels like the film, the town has become built on. Everyone knows there's vampires. They do mention werewolves as well in one of the talks. That people who live in Santa Carla are aware of all these people. They're aware that, and anyone who's smart knows it's probably vampires. Um, no one talks about it, because no one wants to incur the wrath of the vampires. But it's one of the things that people people are aware of. I you know, see. The, 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 um, the guard at the beginning who gets killed in the opening scene, he clearly knows David and the boys, because mm. he has a clearly a relationship there. And it feels like they are kind of getting out of control, and that was their first day of being out of control. But it's very clear that this tower is built for them and by them. Hmm. So I think it becomes a situation where there's an interesting another story there. And I must say, I haven't seen the two sequels that The Lost Boys has to know if that's explored more. But there's certainly a story there about this town that 
accepts vampires as part of its life. I'm not sure the sequels are worth seeing. The the one thing I know about the the first sequel is that um Keith Southern's brother's in it. The protagonist is another Southern. Well, keep it in the family, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I know I know Corey Feldman comes back for the third one. Right. But that's that's all I'm aware of. And I and I must say, despite my love of the uh of, of the Cult of Musicia movie. I've never yet watched the sequels to Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll get that at some point. <laughs> do you, so, sequels aside, Rob, do you have suggestions for us based on this? I do, I do. Um, I've got one thematic and one actorly, but also thematic. Uh, now, we are in October. It is the, the Halloween month. And so I have kind of enjoyed starting off with a horror film. So I've stuck in that vein for my recommendations. So my first one is thematic. Um, and I think it's it's impossible to talk about teenage vampire movies without talking about Buffy Vampire Slayer. I think that the TV show, which was eight seasons, seven seasons, went on to dominate that genre and still feel, you feel the domination of that these days. And in many ways, in that discussion of the TV series, the fact that it was originally a movie is forgotten. So back before um, Sam Pagella was Buffy, Josh Whedon wrote a movie starring... Kirsty Swanson, starring Don Southern, starring Paul Rubin, Ruger Howard, Luke Perry, there's Hilary Swanks in it. It is not a great film, shall we say, and there's a reason why it took him many years to get it back as a TV series. But 1992, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, written by Joss Whedon, sowed a lot of the seeds that became the TV show. And it certainly isn't as formed as a TV show, and it isn't as good a TV show, but it's still worth watching. And it certainly has a similar link in the idea of vampirism as as puberty. And in this case, the idea of becoming vampire slayer is also a, uh, an analogy for her sort of going, becoming her womanhood, shall we say. My second recommendation is from only a couple of years ago. And I was thinking about this film yesterday entirely separately. It wasn't until I did a research that I realised I could actually talk about it. So I'm very happy about it. But the character Max in the first film was played by Ed Herman. He popped up three years ago in a film called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. He plays one of the vicars in it. Essentially, Town That Dreaded Sundown is a horror movie. It is a straight-up horror movie. It it doesn't have any of the comedy elements that Buffy does. It is a straight-up horror movie. About 60 years after a masked serial killer tore up a town. um, And the town has become known for this. There's a movie about it. All that kind of thing. There's a movie within a movie. Six years later, the killing starts again. And we sort of have to deal with the kind of, in many ways, the meta story of everyone in this town who's been made famous by these murders. So there's a movie about them within the movie, and they have these week, this year, yearly watching of the movie at driving. And you end up with these definitely sort of meta narratives about people dying in the same way that they just watch happen, all that kind of stuff. So it isn't quite as subtle as Scream, but it's certainly playing with the same sort of toolkit. Um, interpreted by Alfonso Gomez Rejon, I think I pronounced right, um, and stars lots of people you kind of recognise, but no one special. It didn't make a lot of splash when it came out, but if you haven't seen it and you like horror and you want to see something interesting and good, I can only recommend The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Sam, what about you? Um, well, the two films I'm going to talk about need very little introduction and. I don't need to tell you the story of these. Um, the first one is thematic. I think 
it, it may be the time in life I saw it, but it, I it just blew me away, and I thought it was it was the best. I mean, I haven't seen many vampire horror films, but it it struck me as being head and shoulders above anything I'd ever seen in the genre. And it's the nineteen ninety eight film Blade, um, directed by Stephen Norrington, starring Wesley Snipes and some others. It's just it's really good fun, and I happened to catch one of the sequels the other day, the other week, and it's terrible, and don't go anywhere near the sequels, but the, the original is brilliant. I've got a lot of time for, for Blade Trinity, I must say. Oh, God. Blade, Trini- Blade Trinity has has a line involving vagina and teeth. Yep. Yeah, it's just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah you stick with that, Rob. Fair enough. <laughs> um, and my second one is, well, you've you've only mentioned Diane Weist is particularly um, wooden in this film. She's not a great... It's not a great performance from her. Um, but there's another film made uh, a few years later that she's much better in. Is it, it, It's an enjoyable film. Um, and again, it may be a product of when I saw it that I enjoy it so much. Um, but it's the... Uh, Possibly the last Tim Burton Johnny Depp film that Rob will countenance. It's 1992, 1990, Edward Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, those are my two recommendations for this week. Excellent, excellent. Well, guys, if you disagree with Sam, hopefully you disagree with me because it's a classic. <laughs> but uh, feel free to tell. Te- to do to tweet Sam and tell him why he's wrong about Lost Boys because you know he is. Um, <laughs> you can find both of us on Twitter at Pesci Podcast. Uh, you can find just me at Life underscore Academic, and you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. So we're back next week with our next episode in our job show of the month, and that is 1993's Falling Down. Till then, guys, we would love it if you could give us a review on iTunes. It doesn't mean much, I know, but uh, for us it really means kind of we can get our, ourselves in front of more people, get our podcast in front of more eyes and ears. So if you like what we do, please head over to iTunes and give us a review. It really would make our day. Till then, guys, we shall see you next week. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.